Welcome to Now We Listen, a podcast celebrating traditionally underrepresented performers, scholars, and research topics in early music and historically informed performance. I'm Thomas Carroll. Now We Listen is curated and produced by members of Early Music America's IDEA Task Force. It is the only early music podcast written and hosted by diverse individuals in the historically informed performance community. A further aim of the podcast is to highlight performances or texts that seek to deconstruct cultural and personal biases within a wide range of communities. Our episode today is titled The Colonialization of Music in Theory and Practice. Music theory professor Dr. Philip Ewell joins us in a conversation about his own music theory and the white racial frame and his upcoming monograph on music theory and making music more welcoming available spring 2023 at the University of Michigan Press. Hello, Phil. We're glad to have you with us today. Welcome to Now We Listen. Thomas, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. So I guess to uh, start off, can you give us a brief history of your musical background? What led you to uh, music theory as well as performing? Yeah, thanks for the question. I began as a cellist. My dad was very into classical music. I grew up in Northern Illinois and there was a wonderful music educator. His name was Arthur Monska. And in fourth grade, he came through our school and said, this is a violin and he played it. And it sounds like this, and this is a cello. And I chose the cello and my dad and mom were, they were both really happy. And I kept with it. I almost quit in high school. I was doing some sports, but my dad, he fooled me or he tricked me. He got me, uh, we had been renting cellos, you know, like the factory stuff. And he bought me a a shop made German cello. It was a good cello. It was very orange, I remember. And because of that, I kind of stuck with it. And uh, then I went to college. I went to Stanford University. Again, not to major in music. I was still not that into it. But I did have a really great teacher there, Stephen Harrison. And I continued and then declared music as a major. So it was really cello first for me before I went to music theory. So with the cello, I went to Queens College, I got a master's in cello performance, and then I really got into Russian music. And I had the opportunity to go to Russia in the early 90s, uh, which was outstanding, um, very interesting post-Soviet, obviously quite different from what it is today. And I studied with a very famous cellist at the St. Petersburg Conservatory. His name was Anatoly Mikitin. I remember uh, when I went and played for him, the first, I'd actually played for him in New York to introduce myself to Leningrad Philharmonic was at Carnegie Hall. And I was able to meet him and play for him. That's how I made the connection. But when I made it to St. Petersburg, I played the prelude and fugue of the Bach fifth suite, which is quite difficult. And that's the only fugue that uh, Bach ever wrote for solo cello. Uh, and I remember I played it. And at the end, he uh, he said, well, that's really great, Phil. That's fine. But we don't play it like that here. <laughs> and then he he took his cello and he started playing it. I don't know if you know this, Thomas, but but a good Russian vibrato on cello spans about a minor third. So just imagine hearing Bach <laughs> like that. And that's exactly uh, what it was. So it was a really interesting time to be there. Aside from that, I decided ultimately to pivot to music theory. And I did that because I there's an, a very famous organist, Kimberly Marshall, who uh, was a teacher of mine and mentor at Stanford University. And she was at the Royal Academy at that uh, in the early 90s. And I 
it applied to DMA programs in cello, but I said to myself, let me see if I can get a connection with the Royal Academy. Maybe I can do something there. And she was so gracious. She met me and uh, we talked and she listened to all of my interests. And she said, you, you should maybe think about musicology, uh, you know, the academic side of music. And it was Kimberly Marshall. Kimberly, if you're listening, thank you for that. <laughs> Very good advice. And that's when I pivoted actually to the academic side. I ended up going to Yale and majoring in music theory. So that's what got me into music theory. Um, and I ended up getting a job out of graduate school, early 2000s, made it. I was at three different places, but now I've been at Hunter College since 2009. You know, it, it's interesting that you mentioned a mentor uh, sort of pushing you towards the academic side of music, because I think that's how a lot of us get involved in the early music movement to begin with. There's a certain uh, bent that people have where they are fantastic performers and then academia beckons, uh, whether it's reading treatises or whether it's uh, like me going into organology and, and starting to build instruments. But I think early music attracts a very uh, academically conscious person. Agreed. The excerpt we heard earlier was by an overlooked Renaissance composer of color, Vicente Lusitano, one of many examples of composers and performers overshadowed by the weight of the canon. Phil, can you tell us more about Vicente Lusitano and his music and what this particular excerpt means to you? Sure, uh, I don't know a whole lot about this particular composer. I know his name mostly through an article by my dear friend, Garrett Schumann that appeared in Van Magazine, and Garrett has done quite a bit of work on Lusitano's work. But I think the reason why I like this piece and this composer so much, it's a beautiful chromatic motet from, well, I think he was born in about 1500, so, you know, early, mid-16th century. The reason I like to highlight a composer like this is because it shows us that there were always people who were not white or who would not have been considered white. And the second part of what I just said is extremely important because in white frameworks, one point that's often highlighted, for instance, if you're going back to the ancient Greeks and the whole Western mythology narrative that people in the status quo in power will say is, and quite accurately, the Greeks never thought of themselves as white. The Romans never thought of themselves as white. And that's true. And that in their mind somehow, I don't know, alleviates uh, some of the tension, maybe. But that's just nonsense. Because what happened ultimately in a white supremacist system like we've had here in the United States since the Constitutional Convention in 1787 is that whiteness was essentially mapped onto certain peoples in the past, right? The word white, if you listen to perhaps uh, Ibram Kendi, is probably about 500 years old. It uh, was first in legislation in this country in 1691, by the way. Most race scholars cite the legislation coming out of Virginia as the first time we see the word white. But um, in a Renaissance uh, composer like Vicente Lusitano, who is generally called Mestizo in most of the literature I've seen written about him, it's often that nobody would have said white anyway. So we think to ourselves, well, what's the big deal, right? Well, the big deal is that he was erased from the Western canon, and he was erased because of his blackness. And it's not easy to hear things like that said so bluntly, but I've given up trying to obfuscate these things anymore. I think just saying things clearly is, is the best way. So in short, highlighting composers like Lusitano, and there were many, of course, throughout history, throughout the history of music that, that we know, 
who wrote very interesting music. They should always have been part of our conversations um, and they should never have been erased, but they have in fact been erased because of the structural whiteness and, and structural maleness. I always hasten to add that goes, you know, those two things have been tied right at the hip. So those are the two pillars of power, uh, certainly in the academic study of music, but of course in the United States of America writ large. As with the field of music theory and uh, to a slightly lesser extent musicology, academic research in the early music movement thus far has been seen as a largely white and male domain, which of course brings with it certain biases and tactics of exclusion. In a large part, this breaks down to, to power and an establishment that might be afraid to relinquish it. And yet at its core, when the early music movement got started, it was an extension of counterculture and it was a way to break from the establishment itself all the way back to uh, Dolmetsch. How did the shift happen? Does legitimacy and a general acceptance in the greater musical academic world for the historically informed performance community bring with it certain baggage? Or was the baggage always there as a symptom of larger issues? Uh, the second one, the baggage was always there. There's no question about that. So in any system based on race, Barner Hesse at Northwestern, he would call this a raceocracy. And if that race is white, as it has been in many countries uh, operative over the centuries, there will always be turf battles. And I have heard, uh, I've not really heard it so much with the early music community, but I've heard certain quarters of different power structures try to ally themselves with other, you use the word counterculture, like, well, we're also fighting against the system, as if to say. But this is, uh, how can I put it? Well, that that's quite a stretch um, because there will always be turf battles within a structure and goodness, uh, look at the United States and the Civil War. That was that was a white-on-white -white war, was it not? It was just white people fighting about power, right? So yeah, counterculture, sure. And I won't say which side is the North, the Unionists, and which side is the South in terms of that, because I, <laughs> I'm not trying to make any kind of uh, linkage there. I'm simply saying that within white power structures, you have turf battles, and that is a turf battle, right? It's a power structure. And to say uh, it's counterculture, and then possibly, and I'm not saying that you're trying to do this, ally yourself with BLM or, or Me Too movements or uh, other truly marginalized, and I say truly because those are the ones who are marginalized, the people of color the people who don't have cisgender maleness at their core. Those are the marginalized people, not people who are white, who happen to be doing something within a framework that's not quite uh, mainstream. So there's always been baggage there. It's something that may not be easy for the listener to bear, but I think that it's pretty clear that it's just part of power. And I appreciate the use of the word counterculture. And I, I understand what you're trying to say, but the baggage was always there. There's no question about that because of course, the repertoire is drawn from the same source, right? As the mainstream classical repertoire comes from the same tradition, right? Yeah, I mean, this, and of course, with this same tradition, we're talking about the establishment of a 19th century sense of the musical canon. As you argue in many of your writings, uh, one could substitute racism and exclusion based on skin color with sexism. And the biases in the music theory community uh, would arguably be the same. 
you've been instrumental in changing your curricula to reflect a more inclusive field of composers and examples that can be used in courses. And I think that's incredibly admirable, especially in the direction that academia uh, would seem to want to go in uh, were it not for for people uh, on the other side trying to pull it back. What more can be done in the early music field or in any musical academic field to create a culture of inclusivity for both performers and for audiences? When we consider audience sustainability in the 21st century and the fact that it really comes down to marketing and effective marketing, how do we change that marketing and branding in a way that avoids tokenism on one hand, but also gets audiences to show up to the door on the other? Yeah, that's a really, uh, it's a great question and it's a difficult question also. First, I would say that I wouldn't quite say, yes, I've said that in a sense, you can substitute sexism for racism and and you can get a long way with that. But of course, they're not the same. And I do draw those distinctions. So I would say that there are certainly more similarities that I like to draw than dissimilarities or more points of convergence rather than points of divergence. And as I said earlier, those two things have been tied right at the hip. But in terms of what we can do, and you mentioned marketing and getting people to show up to concerts, those are all important questions. And I wish I had a nice silver bullet answer for you here, but it's actually quite difficult to make quick changes so that things get better along these lines. One of my mantras these days is, we can't understand what anti-racism will look like in the future in music until we understand what racism looked like in the past in music. So we have to understand what musical racism was, right? We still are in this period right now in the United States where we're, we're moving from what was individual racism, this person is bigoted, that's bad, don't do it. And now finally people realize, oh my God, it's a massive structure and system like redlining that kept black people away from the FHA loans that allowed white people to get get wealth. People are finally having those discussions, right? And of course, the reaction of official whiteness is one of apoplexy. I mean, indignation that people are even talking about this. Tens of millions of Americans are so angry that the question even gets raised that racism could be a structure. So these are battles that are taking place now. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. But in terms of a struggle in music, what's difficult is that there still simply are not enough people in power who actually believe the structural aspects of the academic study of music are racist and that the structural aspects of the academic study of music are sexist. They still don't believe it. And they will say kind of that they have to. Unfortunately, there's there's too much duplicity out there. There are, uh, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of wonderful people who who get it, who are trying to make changes, but then there's a massive amount of inertia to changing curricula, changing repertoires, right? Changing teaching patterns, changing pedagogy. And what it comes down to is to what extent the people in power actually understand that this is tied to the white supremacist and patriarchal past of the United States of America. Admitting complicity in white supremacy is not an easy pill to swallow, let's be honest. I myself have swallowed some very bitter pills over these last few years. I often talk about my own African-American father and how committed he was to the whiteness and the maleness of 
the academic study of music. He was a mathematician, but he loved classical music. He would never in a million years have acknowledged that his love of Mozart and his belief that Mozart was better had anything to do with whiteness. But if one cannot look in the mirror at themselves and have those hard conversations, then I don't see how that one person can help us move forward. There are lots of people who are looking at themselves, and I commend them for those difficult aspects of making progress, of self-reflection, of advancement. But I've done this now for some years, and I've had quite literally thousands of reactions from all over the planet. Kind of hard for me to believe. I'm just a Russianist and a cellist. Just, you know, I was like excited if 100 people read an article of mine like five years ago. And now it might be 100,000, which is quite strange for, for me to even say. But I've done it for some years, and I can see that the people in power still believe that Beethoven was a better composer. He represented this teleological, it was a goal-driven narrative. It was total nonsense, let's be clear. This narrative of greatness, this pinnacle of greatness, and you'll hear people say it's the pinnacle of musical thought, the pinnacle of musical humanity. Now, to be clear, again, that is complete nonsense. Now, when people hear that and they want to defend Beethoven as the greatest composer or Mozart, potentially, they'll make it a zero-sum game and they'll say, Philip Yule hates Mozart. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't. Kind of like Mozart. Not not crazy about Mozart. Love Brahms. That's just my opinion. I actually really like Brahms a lot. Um, but they'll make it, you know, Philip Yule hates this stuff. And, that, and that's just silly. Uh, I've never said any of that and I never would. The bottom line is, is that these composers whom we have put up, and I count myself among those who have put them up there, on that hallowed hilltop, once you explain why they were put up there because of power and because it was related to the whiteness and maleness of the system, and you simply suggest that pulling them down to the ground which is where we all actually live anyway. Yes, Brahms was actually just a person like you and me. And speaking of him in those terms, that's extremely threatening to whiteness and it's extremely threatening to maleness. And if you want a piece of that whiteness and strange though it may seem, my black father wanted that piece of whiteness, which is why he was so excited for me to become a cellist actually. Um, I look back on that and I'm like, well, that's kind of whack actually, Dad. But thanks, because I do like the cello. <laughs> you see, I'm arguing with myself here, Thomas, and that's <laughs> part of the kind of the self-reflection I think that anybody has to go through. It's not easy for me to sit here and say my African-American father was, to a small extent, a white supremacist, but he was. He, he scoffed at African-Americans who wrapped, who wore their clothes a strange way, or who who used uh, names for their kids uh, with African roots. And that's just painful for me. I'll be honest, it's painful. He should not have. I certainly don't. Um, but that's anti-Blackness. And that's the anti-Blackness that's baked into the foundation of the country. It brings up the question of, of assumed assimilation that we all go through to some extent uh, in the classical music world. As performers of color, this idea of assimilation, of having to fit into this norm that's been set aside for us by a largely Germanic 19th century uh, canon, 
can seem like the weight of the world is on your shoulders at a time when more and more performers are being made to think about their place within classical music based on how the world sees them just based on their skin color. Right, right. And you know, the weight of the world, I often speak about how that weight will come off of your shoulders if you can let go of these mythologies. It's actually a real, I've heard many people say this to me, and it's happened with me too, that I'm like, I don't have to defend Brahms as the greatest composer on the on the planet anymore. Not that I really ever did. I, but, you know, it, it's like concentric circles of the white supremacy, you know, where Richard Spencer's and the really kind of vile folks are on the inside who are hardcore white supremacists. And you come out a few circles and I don't know where I would have been five years ago or 10 years ago, but, you know, circle four, maybe, I don't know. And I don't know how many circles there are, but letting go is, it's a really emancipating feeling. A dear friend of mine up at uh, Ithaca College, a uh, musicologist up there talked about this. I stopped teaching the Western canon, like just as this chronological theological thing. And I just started doing case studies in my historical classes the students mostly uh, mostly loved it. There were some students like, no, I want to go back to the old way. Okay, fine. There'll always be that. But she's like, the students loved it. But then for me, I was like, oh my God, it's like I got a second awakening of how to look at music because there's way too much music to teach to our students on our planet in any major, right? But the idea that we have to start with the ancient Greeks and then come up through the 20th century and end up, end up with Milton Babbitt, well, that's just silly. And um, when you look at the historical aspect of that in music theory, quite literally 100% of the figures were both white or would have been considered white by other people like Aristoxenus or Pythagoras. And they were, they were all cisgender men. You, you can't argue with that. I'm stating a fact. This is not an open question. And then when you look at that history that we have been handed down, you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> And now that people are thinking about it, they're like, well, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Even if people don't like Philip Ewell, and there are certainly detractors out there, that's completely fine. I expect that. But still, I don't think anybody should say that that's acceptable, that the only people whose music we think worthy of study had to be white. <laughs> and of course, they wouldn't say they had to be white male. They would just say they were the most exceptional and all that. But but most people understand that that's just a kind of an obfuscating tactic. That's smoke and mirrors. So. I think that things are actually moving in a, in a good direction in, in the academic study of music in the United States. But we have biases uh, in the way we understand music. And when you see somebody refigure, uh, reconstruct the, 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 the way we conceive of music, just let's, let's talk about music uh, in the late 19th century. Here is a, a mariachi piece from Northern Mexico. Here's a Ghanaian vocal piece from 1890. Here is a piece by Brahms. Why not? He, he composed in the 1890s. And then there's a Gamelon piece. This is the 1890s. Let's call it the 1890s, <laughs> right? Put four pieces on there. You got four, you know, one of them's Brahms because, well, like I said, you know, you, you know that he composed in the 1890s until he, he was dead in 1897. Just, just to even see a concert like that and, and seeing this music. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know the names of the composers. <laughs> from Indonesia, Mexico, and where did I say Ghana? Because we haven't been taught those names and that's a real tragedy, but but we are beginning to, to branch out and think about other people. We're here talking about early music. You know, the same could be said about early music. 
it's hard for early music musicians, I imagine, to kind of even conceive because early music, the whole early music community is very much part of that Western narrative. And to think about it outside of the terms set by the Western narrative is probably quite confusing. But I would just end by saying, since we're using the word Western a lot, that the term Western really only came to pass in about 1850. It, it was only promoted in the late 19th century and became used in the very late turn of the 20th century. And it was only there to do one thing and one thing only, to tie together Europe with the United States, Canada, and Australia, because primarily the United States had too much money and power to be ignored by Europe as it had been prior to that time. Uh, so they needed a new word, it was the West and it stuck. It will go away at some point, probably not within our lifetimes, especially now that Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine and the West has kind of breathed new life into the whole concept of the West, but still nobody really, what is being said is of course white, what people say West. I actually had a, a Zoom conversation with a class I think it was at MIT several months ago, and we talked about the West. And I said, let's just do a little poll. Let's see what happens. Is France the West? All hands go up. Is the United States the West? All hands. Sure, of course. Is Germany the West? All hands. Is Canada the West? All hands. Is China the West? No hands. Okay, fine. Is Nicaragua the West? Hmm. Hands maybe up? No. No hands. Okay. Is Australia the West? And the hands were again, um, well, I don't know. I'm sorry, all hands, right? Australia. And I said, you just told me that a country that longitudinally lies east of China is the West. And a country that is 100% in the Western hemisphere is not the West, Nicaragua. Why? Because it's not majority white. In other words, West is white. That's the most basic thing about the West. When you when you say the word West, you actually mean white. And it's difficult to say that because the word white is kind of like a half slur. Or like Chenjirai Kuminika at Rutgers says, he's a black guy. He says, you know, whenever you see, you're talking to somebody who's white and you say the word white, it's like you just stab them a little bit. <laughs> and I just love that because it's true. It shouldn't be. It's just a word. Yes, it's associated today with white supremacy and white nationalism, and those are very bad things. But I say this because my mother was white. I've written about that. I don't know if, if that's something you've come across, but she was from Norway. She was a Norwegian passport holder, and she was a proud green card holder of these United States of America until she passed in 2010. And I often say that my white mother was a far better anti-racist than my black father. And it was from my white mom that I learned the true meaning of anti-racism and not from my black dad. Uh, and that's long before that word entered my vocabulary. So I take it a little personally, if people are just here to trash whiteness, that's not what this is about at all. It is about understanding and unpacking the history of power and oppression and hate and anger that have driven so many decisions in the United States of America the academic study of music, of course, is no exception. People sometimes think, well, it's music. You shouldn't be talking about these things. It's just music. It's supposed to be nice. And as if we could somehow fly above the white supremacy that shaped our 19th century musical institutions. Well, we didn't fly above anything. Those They were set 
with whiteness and maleness in mind, look at the New York Philharmonic, 1842, one of the oldest musical institutions in the country, 1842. The first woman was Stephanie Goldner. She was a harpist. She came on board in 1922, so 80 years. The first Black person was Sanford Allen, violinist in 1962. So that took 120 years. And for anybody who says that's only because there were no women and there were no Black people who were good enough, well, you can follow up with an email to me and I'll, I'll set you straight because that's just not true. It never was true. There were always very talented people of color who could play those instruments and very talented people who were not cisgender men. Who could, and notice I'm saying not cisgender men because I'm also talking about non-binary folks and transgender folks. It's only in the last few years we actually talk about them as if they never existed before. And that's also a fallacy. They existed as long as humans have existed. Okay, that's just a fact. The Zoom session that you did at MIT where you asked students to determine whether or not a particular nation would be considered West or non-West, I think is very reflective of how musicologists and composers and the general public thought of certain segments of what we would now consider Europe in the 19th century to the exclusion of music by Polish and Czech and Slovakian and Russian composers uh, with the, the canon mainly focusing on Germanic uh, repertoire and French repertoire and to some extent English repertoire at its foundation, and then only recently expanding out to include Eastern Europe as part of what would be considered European music. And of course, there's a lot of baggage to unpack with that, the exoticism that composers uh, would bring in, particularly in the 19th century and the early 20th century, especially from the Russian school of composers. Um, and that's, of course, something that now in the 21st century, we're, we're starting to look at with maybe a more critical uh, lens, especially when we actually know what, what that music really sounded like. But it is interesting to, to consider that a composer such as Druchetsky might not have been considered a truly Germanic European composer in the same tradition as Beethoven, who was just a few kilometers down the road at that point. I'll do you one better. Tchaikovsky yes. would not have been considered. <laughs> and I'm doing you one better because Tchaikovsky's a household name. And in that entire narrative, of course he couldn't have been as great as Brahms. I mean, it always comes down to the as great as argument, right? Good, but not as great. Because it, when you look at it, it's a pyramid scheme, really. Um, it, it's a Nigerian-American author. Her name is Ijoma Aluo, and she wrote a very nice book called So You Want to Talk About Race. And in it, she says that white supremacy is this nation's oldest pyramid scheme. Everybody's trying to get their bite at the apple, but it's really only set up for a very small few at the very top. Well, you could easily say that about the academic study of music because, well, look, Heinrich Schenker limited his list to 12 composers. 12. Okay. And one thing I always love to point out is one of them, well, first, it wasn't Tchaikovsky, it wasn't even Wagner, but one composer was Domenico Scarlatti. Okay. That's kind of proof positive that it's just subjective, right? 
it's just subjective. I mean, most people today, if you're going to buy into the whole Western greatness stuff, they're going to say that Tchaikovsky and Wagner were quote unquote greater than Domenico Scarlatti. They would say that, right? I don't say things like that because I don't buy into the Western greatness narrative. I happen to like Tchaikovsky's music, for example, and I, I'm not a big fan of Scarlatti's. Okay, there it is. But when it comes down to it, when you have only 12 names, or let's just say there are about 20, right, in this narrative, these are the greatest of the great. This is the tip of the pyramid. Well, then uh, you have to find ways to not let people get to the tip, right? And one way is, well, if you're not German. Okay, that's easy if you are if you buy in, because the whole greatness myth of our academic study of music is based on Germanism. It's based on Germanism. It's based on pianism. Those are the two non-racial, non-gender aspects of our academic study of music, right? Uh, aside from the things that we are born with as humans, our race and our gender, gender identity, there is, there is still Germanism and pianism that drives what we have been told, usually by white cisgender men themselves, that we have to believe, which is that there are about 20 great composers. And occasionally you'll get one that's not German. Chopin is the first name that comes to mind, right? He was Polish, but he absolutely had the piano thing going. So that's, he gets a big merit for that. Um, but notice, of course, none of them were not pianists. So that's obvious. And then almost all of them were native German speakers. I imagine Chopin probably knew some German. I don't really care. But at any rate, if you're going to deal with the pyramid scheme, you have to find a way to, to get people down and then to keep them down. Now, obviously, if you're going to go with those four things that I've talked about, whiteness, maleness, pianism, and Germanism, well, it doesn't matter how well a Black person speaks German or plays the piano. That doesn't matter. They're Black for heaven's sake. <laughs> That's the most denigrated, most degraded race. It can't possibly that race can't possibly rise up anywhere higher than mid-pyramid, right? That's just not the way a pyramid scheme works. But if you can realize that there is this entirely fallacious mythological pyramid scheme aspect of what we do, and then just kind of toss it aside because it's just not really operative. I mean, back to what I was saying earlier, it's really hard to look in that mirror and to tell yourself that everything you believed about Brahms was in part just not true. It doesn't mean that you have to start disliking Brahms. doesn't mean that he was a bad composer. It, it means that it was part of the power structure and you didn't understand the power structure. And that's an honest, there's nothing wrong with, with saying that, hey, th these things are extremely hard to get to the bottom of. Why, why should we have in music these great detectives who go around and figure all these things out. We clearly don't have that because we still have in music theory, 94% of our tenured professors are white. If we'd figured it out, it wouldn't be like that, right? But we're like the Supreme Court, right? Out of about 120 Supreme Court justices, well, there've been three black justices, right? Two currently serving. I think there've been four, maybe five women. I think probably five women at this point. Well, and then the rest were white men, right? I should say, so to my or she's Latina. So, okay, that's excellent. Not black, but per person of color. So, you know, why would we be any different in music when you realize the structures are so tilted toward those aspects of power?
And of course, those aspects of power and that representation of the pyramid scheme, of course, also goes into academic writing to, to a, a large extent. We, we often talk about peer review, but is it truly peer review if the peerage isn't actually representative of the actual population of readers? Um, this, in some parts, seems like a self-perpetuating system that's, all, of course, designed to exclude people of color and female academics disproportionately. And it seems that in the way, particularly in, in um, your field, in, in the music theory field, that it's set up that way. And there's not really been a large movement to change that in, in a way that really seems to be taking hold as of yet. Yeah, there's a good reason for that, because that is the best way to police and enforce the whiteness and maleness in the field. And I should be clear, it's the doubly blind, and that's an, that's an ableist term. It should be called doubly anonymous peer review. Uh, that's what they call it in Russia, for example, but it's called blind, so we should change that to begin with. But I'm going to say it because that's what the listener will, will know. The so-called doubly blind peer review process, I call the gold standard of policing and enforcing the whiteness and maleness of academic music. And I use the, the language from Kate Mann here, one of my favorite writers, a feminist philosopher at uh, Cornell University. She's an Aussie. And um, if you know her two books, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, and entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women, she's laid out one of, one of the most basic aspects of the book is how she lays out the distinction between sexism and misogyny. Sexism is a is the theoretical branch of patriarchy that lays out the theories, the thinking behind why we need sexism, right? Misogyny is the policing and enforcing branch of patriarchy. So I just take that over to racism as well. Racism is that theoretical branch of white supremacy. And the analogy to misogyny, I call anti-Blackness. That's the policing and enforcing of a white supremacist system. And there's no better way to uh, police and enforce commitments to whiteness and maleness than to have a quote unquote blind peer review process because there's very little accountability. There's just very little of it. And the editors have an enormous amount of power. Uh, I have one vignette in my upcoming monograph about a person who tried to reject an article I had written on Rimsky-Korsakoff. It ultimately came out in Music Theory Spectrum because the other person said it should be published. So they went to a third person and that person said, yeah, it should be published. It's a good article. But the first person said that I don't think we should let Rimsky-Korsakov into the cemetery of great composers just because he used a certain compositional technique, uh, essentially. And I just use that in the book because I'm like, do you see what happens? I'm like, I don't know who this person is. It's, it's, <laughs> it is blind, right? Or it's anonymous, as it should be called. But it's great because it's a data point that just says, okay, I get it. You don't like Rimsky-Korsakov. Obviously, you don't like him because he wasn't part of the German thing, right? He did write 15 really interesting operas, by the way. He actually is a big composer in Russia and other parts of the world, not just Russia by the way, but okay, well, let's let, let that go. But the peer review process is able to do that. So you're right when you're talking about the makeup of the behind the scenes teams making these decisions. Uh, another part of this monograph, I simply lay out the, the fact that they've never had in the Society for Music Theory, and they have many publications, a native born African-American person serve in any capacity at all ever, not, on, not even just on a board. And that just speaks to the anti-Blackness. Again, they're like, we would have loved to have 
black music theorists uh, serve, but there just were none, no qualified ones. <laughs> Setting aside the fact that Philip Ewell is black, <laughs> I'll just <laughs> I'll state that the first black PhD in our country was in 1972. His name was Horace Boyer. He's not he's no longer alive. And there were a whole slew of them in the 70s and in the 80s and the 90s. In other words, there of course there were black music theory PhDs who could have served on boards, who could have edited journals, uh, but they were passed over. And it needs to be said very clearly, they were passed over because they were black. It's just that simple, right? You, you shouldn't try to spin it any other way. It is their blackness that prohibited them from being considered as a card-carrying member of an editorial board, as an editor, as an associate editor. To argue otherwise would just be completely disingenuous. And I won't listen to people who try to argue otherwise on a point like that. So one person, Sarah Everson, uh, graduate of the Florida State uh, University's really fine music theory program. She first told me a uh, uh, suggested open peer review as a solution to this problem some years ago. And uh, I agree that the open peer review process could go a long way into solving this problem because then you have accountability and you actually get to see and understand and hear who the people are and what they're saying. You can't just say whatever you want, like Cemetery of Great Composers and like, aha, I, I made a witty little pun, a cemetery. Yeah, well, <laughs> thank you for that because I'm using it in my book and I'm sure it'll, <laughs> a lot of people will get a good laugh out of it. That's what they call a win-win in business. <laughs> but in terms of the open peer review process, what will happen when people suggest it is, we can't do that because that represents a dumbing down of the process, a quote unquote lowering of standards. Now let's unpack that. Well, of course, it would be a lowering of standards if you are such an assimilationist that you believe that people should assimilate to a white perspective and should assimilate to a cisgender man perspective. That makes sense to me. That, that literally is a lowering of standards because it means that the field is going to become less white and less cisgender man. And I will acknowledge for the assimilationist, that's true, but you have to call it out and say, that's unacceptable because your assimilationist position is in fact a racist position and your assimilationist position is in fact a sexist position. If you must defend your racism and defend your sexism, but please don't try to cloak it in some cloaking device and tell me that this lowering of standards of which you speak is actually operative because it's not. What it means is it's going to become a little less white and a little less male. It's going to become more fair and it's going to become more accountable. And that's what this is about. It's about the accountability and the responsibility behind the scenes so that people who have, let's be honest, racist convictions and who have sexist convictions cannot act in ways uh, based on those convictions. And we should all be fighting against that. One of my favorite pieces that you've written um, that I believe is still still on your uh, your website the last time I checked um, is entitled Beethoven was an above average composer let's leave it at that at first the title seems inflammatory but you very elegantly lay out the argument that the canon as we know it and as we've been discussing today was simply white males largely Germanic promoting other white males largely Germanic which brings with it a lot of problems which we've attempted to unpack here today 
at the time, American music theory was being developed into its own academic field in the mid 20th century, the great books collection promoted by Encyclopedia Britannica was also being developed, again, largely to the exclusion of writers and academics of color and women. So the parallels are quite obvious and point to fundamental issues with what has been traditionally valued in the educational system. As active performers, researchers, and scholars on the front lines of music, so to speak, how do we confront these biases and break the cycle in a truly meaningful way? Uh, yeah, it's um, that, boy, I, I really hit the soft spot with that piece, I should say. I mean, that was- Well, the... excellent. I mean, that's exactly what the academic world needs right now, especially in music. Because I always have friends read stuff before I put it up. And one friend of mine, wrote in the marginalia she's like this is going to be a controversial you know wording and i and i was like well yeah but you know how controversial <laughs> so controversial that after a couple of months of just ridiculousness on the comments i just had to shut the, the comments down on the, on the which is fine i don't i but you know being able to be in a position where you're shutting the comments down after a couple of months, people are talking about it. Now people are engaging with it, which is the important thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Thank you. And I did hit the soft spot because the, the most basic, I could sum it up in one, maybe two sentences. If you say that Beethoven was more than above average, you are a priori saying that you know all the music on planet Earth that was written 200 years ago, and you came to the very scientific conclusion that Beethoven's music was best. Obviously, you don't. You are parroting the great works, masterpiece, exceptionalism, pinnacle of musical humanity nonsense that we have all been taught by, not insignificantly, white cisgender men themselves in the history of the academic study of music since the 19th century when our music institutions began, like the Peabody Institute, 1857, like Oberlin Conservatory, 1865, Yale School of Music, 1894. Metropolitan Opera, 1883. The 19th century saw our music institutions begin, and they were quite explicitly white supremacist and patriarchal. Let's work from that fact forward. Now, in terms of what can be done, it's just one of those, uh, I think I said it earlier, that there's no silver bullet answer. It's just really hard, difficult work that needs to be engaged with historically, I'd say more than anything. In our short conversation here, you've heard me say many things of a historical nature, going back 2,500 years to the Renaissance, to the 19th century. I hit the 19th century hard because in, in our country, that's really when a lot of stuff happened in music, of course, but also outside of music, as, as we all know. Uh, but until you can kind of grasp what happened and, and then understand the injustices and, and frankly, the hate and the anger that was at the core of this system, it was not a happy-go-lucky system of chattel slavery and, and just the uh, decimation of indigenous peoples, the genocidal conquest of the peoples who were here before Europeans arrived. Until you can come to terms with that, it's really hard, to, for me at least, to think about the moving forward part. You know, one of the things that we've talked about is how in our lifetimes, perhaps change is only partially achievable just because everything is so baked in and ingrained in our culture, both in academia and music and how we've been trained and brought up to think about music and just the entire world around us. If this change is only partially available in our generation, 
How do we as instructors and teachers ensure that our students and our students' students carry on this legacy of trying to enact change and continue to engage with these issues? What do we say to our students to inspire them and empower them to keep up the fight? Well, you know, that's a great question. I think the first thing I would say is we just kind of approach our students with some humility. But I would say that if you're thinking about humility, like, hey, I am going to try to teach you what I know, but I actually know very little. I'm rethinking some of these things in a profound way because I read a book, listened to a pod, saw something on TV, whatever, uh, on my computer screen or who watches TV anymore. You know, I think just kind of instilling in our students this kind of curiosity that comes with that humility and the acknowledgement that you may not have been right about all the things you thought about music over these years. And then, and then accepting the fact that our students have a lot to teach us. I often make the point that I, with no disrespect to all the eminent music theorists I've studied with over these last couple decades, um, and big names are there, um, I've learned no less from all of the people junior to me who've contacted me over the last few years about music and music theory and life, really. I mean, down to as young as uh, four high school students with whom I've had conversations. Two of them interviewed me for different projects. And I thank them for that because it's been really eye-opening and it's been an amazing experience. I gave a talk in November 2019 and I started with four simple words. I said, music theory is white. And I violated the rules that whiteness and maleness set forth. If I had played by those rules, I was supposed to have used coded language. And that coded language was simple. You know what it is. It would have been music theory lacks diversity, which was the agreed upon way of saying that music theory is white. But I decided to stop using coded language. And here I am three, four years later, talking to a very interesting pod about early early music and having done many interviews and uh, over a hundred lectures all over the place. And just by saying something as simple as music theory is white and then laying out the academic argument for that case, it shouldn't be so, I don't know, crazy or controversial. People sometimes say, oh, Phil, yeah, he's controversial. I'm like, well, am I? <laughs> Maybe. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't like to make commentaries about myself so much, really. Maybe I am controversial. But if if I'm controversial for simply saying music theory is white, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I said that to a room of maybe 600 people, probably 550 of whom were white. <laughs> so that's a strange thing for me to, to, to think about. But back to the question, what can we leave our students? Humility, um, just openness, open mind, open heart. And then Hopefully, maybe you can teach me a few things. What are you reading? What are you listening to, Susie? <laughs> that probably will help our students more than we realize. The students who can then say, this person just wasn't preaching to me, like, do this, do that. But there, there has to be more of a kind of collegial back and forth, I think, with our students. And then that probably would instill in our students, I would hope that it would instill in students the desire to do the same when they get to the position of teaching their own students. I think learning from our own students 
and uh, recapturing that feeling that some of them have when they come to us with these questions of being completely unafraid to engage with this material and unafraid to ask the uncomfortable questions is really something that at its core, the early music movement has always been about. Yeah. And I think all of this being unafraid to ask these questions and to, to engage with this material is really something that we can all sort of take to heart as we go forward and develop maybe a new approach to looking at music and musicology and the early music movement. Yeah. One more little vignette, if I can finish with a vignette, since we're talking about teaching and, um, and the early music movement. Yes. So... One very famous cellist in Russia, his name is Sergei Raldugin. Raldugin. He's without question the richest cellist in the world. He's probably worth about $3 billion. And he taught a, a masterclass once and I was there. I knew Sergei Raldugin a little bit back then. He actually would probably remember me because I was the mixed race Black American guy who, who studied with his father-in-law. <laughs> and there weren't that many of those. So uh Hey, Sergey, if you're listening to this, hi. <laughs> but at any rate, he taught a, a master class and it was uh, it was Bach, I think. This is the early 90s. And he started talking about the early music movement in quote unquote the West, right? And he was already traveling in the early 90s, you know, because in the Soviet Union, it was very rare. Musicians did occasionally travel, but it was all very much watched by the Soviet government. But he was talking to this violinist and he was teaching at the master class and he was like, you know, this is an Alman or a Courant or something. And in the West, it's about the dance and they have this early music stuff and they think about playing with open strings and they minimize the vibrato. And then he goes through this laundry list of things that they do. And he's and then he said, and they actually get enjoyment out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was the funniest thing in the world when he said that, because I, I had actually just finished Queens College where I'd done quite a bit of Baroque playing, as I mentioned, with Nancy Wilson and Raymond Erickson. I played in a Bach aria group. So I still had a lot of that, you know, let me hit some more open strings. Let me think about a little less vibrato. And uh, and he said that, and I'm just like, oh my God, that's the funniest thing. They actually get enjoyment out of it. <laughs> You've shared with us in memoriam uh, from Max Richter's on the Nature of Daylight, uh, in honor of Black lives lost to police violence in our country. Could you introduce it to the audience? Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, so this very rough cut is an audio video I did on June 19th, 2020. I dropped it on Juneteenth. And that, of course, was the height of the pandemic. New York City was really one of the hotspots of the whole world. And we were just holed up in our apartment in Brooklyn, my wife and my uh, son and I, and I saw all these musicians doing these duets, trios with themselves, like a flute player playing all three parts of a trio. And I'm like, oh, I can figure that out. I can do that. Of course, like four days later, watching like a hundred hours of YouTube videos of these teenagers halfway around the world, <laughs> um, I figured it out. What I did was I took Max Richter's On the Nature of Daylight, which is basically a string quintet. I think it's originally in B flat minor. And I'm like, I want to have my son play the top violin part. So I just said, I could kick it up a half step. I did that to B minor. I think that's what I did. So two sharps. And I'm like, yeah, he can do that. Open strings. And so he's, he's playing the top part. I play the four bottom parts on my cello. And I have four little squares on the video screen. If you dial it up on YouTube, 
So at the beginning, you'll just hear uh, the soundtrack, which is the music to On the Nature of Daylight. It's a, it was featured in the movie uh, Arrival with uh, Amy Adams and, and Jeremy Renner, if, if you know that movie. And he does a lot for film, Max Richter, post-minimalist composer, German guy, in, lives in Britain, I think. But it works really well with In Memoriam, where I dialed up many, many photos online. Uh, of course, George Floyd had just been murdered. So he begins the photos and I have each photo for two or three seconds. And then I have a running tab of Black Lives Lost to police violence. Unfortunately, uh, there were way, way, way more names than I could have on a banner on the bottom. But I might have had, I don't even know, 100 names. Um, I never counted I just needed names to fill about a six minute uh, chunk of time, which was uh, the piece for In Memoriam. So for the listener, um, I don't, you probably won't play it all, but uh, you can dial it up and you can actually see uh, the, the the screen where I did this. It's just all shot with my iPhone XR. So it's not great quality and don't judge me too harshly on all of the, uh, the technical aspects because it was really just a pandemic thing. And I, I was kind of, uh, overwhelmed with all of uh, the protests and the pandemic. And it was actually a very heart-wrenching thing. It was very difficult. I remember when I played the final cut for my wife and son, there's a, a great picture of Sandra Bland. And I just broke down in front of them because my son said, oh my God, who's she? She's so beautiful. And I couldn't even say her name. I couldn't speak. I had to, I had to stop the recording and I just left the room and it was just very, very uh, difficult. But at any rate, I, I hope that I did honor to all those lives lost and just to kind of bring their names to light because it shouldn't happen and it still does. Thank you so much for sharing everything with us today. Um, th this has been just an absolute delight. It's been my pleasure, Thomas. Thank you so much for having me. Thank everybody at Early Music America. It's been really lots of fun. This was Now We Listen, a podcast celebrating traditionally underrepresented performers, scholars, and research topics in early music and historically informed performance. Please join us in our next episode, Antisemitism and Early Music, where pianist and concert organizer Byron Shankman centers the conversation around the pitfalls of overlooking historically anti-Semitic and discriminatory texts and composers of the canonized previous centuries when programming in the 21st century. As a starting point, they'll use Jeffrey Sposato's book, The Price of Assimilation, Felix Mendelssohn and the 19th Century Anti-Semitic Tradition. Thank you for joining us today. Now We Listen is a project of Early Music Americas Inclusion, Diversity, Equity and Access Task Force. Production, Karin Cuellar and Thomas Carroll. Audio Design, Engineering and Editing, Joanna Joy Neuschatz. <laughs>